Welcome back to the Smarter Marketer podcast, brought to you by Rocket Agency. I'm your host, James Lawrence. Welcome back to the Smarter Marketer podcast. I'm joined today by the two founders of brand and content agency Cello, Lindsay Rogers and Tristan Velasco. Guys, welcome to the pod. Morning. Hi. Hello, friends. It's good to it's good to have you here. So, Cello was founded in 2014. Cello is an independent agency that has worked on award-winning creative projects for clients like Shopify, Uber Eats, My Muscle Chef, Mervac, Kudos Bank, PwC, Volkswagen, and many, many more. Rocket and Cello have worked together on a range of projects now, including the launch and rollout of Live Mervac, which featured on the pod a few weeks ago. And we've kind of talked over the last year or so about getting the guys onto the pod. We'll often catch up and I don't. I don't think we disagree on stuff, but I think we have different perspectives. We've kind of got an agency that's much more in the brand content creative side of things. And then you've got us nerds sitting over at Rocket plugging away into, you know, the technical digital space that we play of SEO and Google and all those fun things. But I think in many ways we see marketing in, in, in very similar ways, but we have probably very different I guess, perspectives on what we see and client challenges. So a wide ranging conversation, brand versus performance, digital versus offline, budgets for creative versus budgets for performance. But for us, it's just three agency owners coming together to just share what we see working and what's what's not working in 2023. And hopefully listeners to the pod can kind of garner something out of the conversation. So I thought before we jump into the conversation, maybe just, yeah, talk to us about Cello and, and what you guys do and where it all started and where it is now. Thanks, James, and good to be chatting with you. I think at the core of it, we've got similar values and how we, you know, approach brand sort of problems or or brand work, and and it's and it's great to collaborate. And if anyone hasn't listened to the podcast where you interviewed Jade at Mervac, definitely worth listening to. At Cello, we do two things: we uh, do branding and deep brand work, so across brand strategy and you know research into insights, and often with scale ups that are sort of at an inflection point where they've sort of grown to certain point in market proven their market fit but the brand that has served them to date sort of isn't the right brand to serve them into the future often with ambitious goals whether it be new funding or change in market conditions and the second thing we do is content production and content work so we produce a lot of campaigns video animation design copy all in-house they're not mutually exclusive oftentimes our brand work runs all the way through to content but as in the the live Mervac case where we you know did a lot of deep and continue to do a lot of deep brand thinking and, and iterative work all the way through to creative execution. But yeah, when you we established in 2014, which means we're 10 next year. You guys are which old now. makes me feel really, really old. <laughs> I mean, where is the walking stick? <laughs> You're all grown up. Well, both of you still look in your 30s, so it's all good. No, sorry, your 20s. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mildly offensive. No, I was, <laughs> was going to, I just messed up my words. I was going to say, uh, you look like you're not yet 30 and I stuffed it up. <laughs> Okay, I, t- I knew this would be a fun one. And, and I guess, Tris, your role in the in the agency? So creative director. I sort of manage everything that comes in and then sort of, you know, really push the creative team to develop, you know, the work that we do and essentially what go- goes out. So Lynn sort of does incoming. I look after outgoing. And it's it's been sort of great, you know, we're, we're not really specific in the, in, in the industries that we work with. We're, we're quite diverse. And that has always been, I guess, an intentional strategy for us because there's obviously learnings you can sort of incorporate across industries that sort of help push and, and shape the work we do better. Nice. Let's just tackle the, the hardest and most difficult question first or topic or theme, brand versus performance. So a lot of the work that you're engaged to do is to take an existing brand and kind of move it and get it out there again, I guess, or it's to take something new into market. Clients will often approach Rocket, which is 
I want performance, you know, we need leads, we need them tomorrow. There's obviously a need for both. There's a need for brand development, continuing to invest in brand over many years. Equally, I think would you know all agree there's, there's a role for performance. So what do you see working best? Like your best clients, the most successful, um, the work you've been involved with, which has had a great commercial outcome. Like how do, how do clients approach the balancing of the two? As you sort of mentioned, it's, it's always going to be a combination of both. I think the reality is for a lot of clients is, you know, the pressures of the numbers and, and, and needing to be able to hit those targets on a quarterly, you know, yearly basis. I think quite often it's also because a lack of confidence in the brands, not knowing what story to tell, what narrative to tell. When we sort of work on brand building projects with clients, they get a new sense of confidence, you know, in regards to how they presented themselves to market. I mean, my muscle chef was probably a typical case of that, where at the time they sort of approached us, they're at a level where they'd sort of hit the ceiling in regards to their, their growth. We really sort of worked with the research partners to identify the key insights around their audience, you know, routine obsessed. They were well-educated in the fitness sort of space. When you sort of go narrow and go deep in regards to who you're targeting and the story that you're going to be telling to those those audiences, you'll turn up in a much more different way. And any confidence behind investing in brands becomes heightened, I think. Then how do you then sort of, you know, tell a connected story from brand through to performance? Yeah, that's a good point. And we were talking about it before we started recording. And this is definitely not Rocket is pushing for performance and Cello's pushing for brand. Like one of my absolute bugbears and frustrations and it's so hard is that marketers will come to us and say you know good news i've got all this budget um to put into a campaign because the sales team needs leads or you know there's business imperatives and let's get into market and you know in the next quarter what do you think is possible and generally the answer is like the best investment in your marketing is to invest in your brand and we're mm. actually talking about with we were kind of exchanging emails a couple months ago with a mutual client and was sending over a lot of that research from Benet and Field around the whole 60-40 rule, which is 60% of your marketing budget should be going into brand activity. 40% should go into your activation, lead gen, performance marketing, whatever you want to call it. And 100%, that's not a fixed rule, right? Like depending yeah. on the, the buyer journey for that particular business, depending on um, the imperatives of that business. But I definitely feel that there's a... Um, a massive overweighting towards short-termism um, yeah. and performance. And I probably have the agency that has the vested interest in that, right? And But there's no doubt that the most successful performance campaigns that we run are for clients that have historically invested really heavily and continue to invest in brand. I think often it's not, I think the marketers often understand that, but they're not armed with the information to be able to fight that yeah. up the food chain. Yeah, I think all all work any marketer is working on should be performance, right? It's sort of that brand brand building and brand work often takes a bit more time. It's a bit more on the proactive rather than reactive. It's, you know, investing into solid foundations for a three to five year horizon or, you know, test and learn um, iterative approach in, in a two-speed format. But I think, you know, that whole idea of sort of brands that have invested during downturns over the over the years. Um, I think it's Ritson that talks about they didn't necessarily see an uptake in share of voice during the downturn itself, but by continually investing through a downturn at the other end, they, you know, exponentially increased because of the salience, you know, and, and cut through during a downturn. So I think sort of having consistency and um, having a voice that is bedded in, you know, deep insights, whether it's around audience or category or the need that you're solving and moving away from just sort of 
although features absolutely a part of a you know a funnel but moving up the chain in terms of the the broader benefits and the problem that you're solving and how what you're you know delivering whether it's product or services benefiting society all of that work it's longer it's often more proactive but over time you know those foundations they absolutely drive performance at the at the sharper end of the funnel yeah for sure like the whole 95.5 rule around and that's a b2b i think it was earnberg bass institute pumped that out and i think then linkedin's kind of content b2b kind of content team went heavy on that last year which is that in a b2b environment 95% 95% of the market isn't in market at any moment in time. Mm. Same in cars, right? Like I think the average is probably a little bit less now, but it was once every 10, once every 10 yeah. years, someone buys a new car, right? Yeah. So the idea that you're only marketing end of financial year sales and whatever else, it's just ridiculous, right? It's why car brands forever and a day have invested in, you know, BMW's marketing to teenagers now, knowing that in 20 years time, they'll buy a car kind of thing. And we see it like when we're running performance for a brand that is strong, has built, you know, over the years, you know, brand building efforts seriously, we will just get better, <laughs> better, better click through rates, better conversion rates, better ROAS, all those digital metrics, which you'd kind mm. of think would be pretty consistent, just depending on how well an ad's written or whatever it might be. But it's kind yeah. of just not the case. And I think in regards to that, there are sort of tools that we work with, with marketers just to really establish what is the playbook? You know, what are we actually saying? So when you're sort of developing performance ads, it's not just for performance sake, at least it sort of connects to, you know, the benefits for the customer, the value propositions in regards to, you know, the role the brands play. And then ultimately it's being committed to that message. And the stronger that connection from proof points through to value prop, there is the more consistency that you'll get in regards to that brand story overall. You mentioned Mark Ritson, Lindsay. I don't know if we're on the same webinar, but he did a webinar probably, I think it was about six months ago now. And he kind of made, it was a really interesting point. He was kind of saying that excellent awareness or top of the funnel advertising can create short-term demand, but very rarely can excellent short-term demand, bottom of the funnel advertising create long-term brand benefit, which I thought was kind of an interesting, interesting perspective. Very segues nicely into the Airbnb case study, which we're kind of talking about. And that's an interesting one, Linz, if you want to kind of talk about that. Yeah, I mean, most marketers will obviously be invested in how uh, Airbnb's marketing and brand strategy itself. But an interesting shift over the last few years, they talk really publicly about shifting from a, a pure performance play into not even brand building. They talk about educating their customers and, you know, having, they've got sort of three different priorities around whether it's getting hosts themselves to be traveling and experiencing more or, or whatnot, choosing the route around educating the audience rather than selling to. Um, and we see a lot of this thinking and a lot of sort of the content strategy work that we do around, you know, content pillars and how can we be interesting, useful, unique, differentiated and distinctive based on the solid foundations of a brand strategy, but delivering in new and interesting ways. And over the, the last couple of years, Airbnb, their owned and earned channels have absolutely skyrocketed. I think I read, you know, they published over 600,000 sort of press articles last year alone. That is just a monstrosity of people talking about the brand. but. Ultimately, great brand building is, you know, the synonyms or the the words in which people associate with you. And and hopefully from Airbnb's perspective, it's that feeling of belong, belong anywhere, you know, anywhere you go, there's a certain level of expectation and obviously all their product features reinforce that. But coming back to clear sort of, you know, brand foundations into content strategy, there's a great example and favorite sort of um, brand of mine called Bedthreads, who I have absolutely no affiliation with, but just really admire their 
their content strategy and and their brand from the outside and they're you know 100 percent um, linen cotton sheets and they've since moved into homewares but what I love about their brand and the the pillars they have a fantastic series of EDMs and a whole part of their website around the that's called the journal and they explore just really interesting pillars I think I'm sort of I probably typify their core customer and I do own a fair few of their products because I you know I find it so compelling so it does lead and drive commercial results because you know I, I'm bought into the stories they tell and the associations they they deliver. But from an Airbnb's perspective around educating the customer, I think Bedthreads does a great job at inspiring. I think their content pillars will be around sort of architecture, interiors, lifestyle. You know, they feature recipes and honestly, just cool stuff that I kind of want to be either associated with or I want to learn from or I'm inspired by or even just visually really beautiful they you know great images and great interiors but it's just so well curated it feels like they are inspiring me rather than selling at me Mm. deeply embedded in inspiration or education in airbnb's case that drives me as a customer to tell other people about them and have a really strong few synonyms you know and, and favorable words towards the brand that i think for me is sort of a huge marker of brand success and and salience it's funny that you um you described yourself as their ideal customer. I'm also one, and I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever mentioned it before. I sit there getting their EDMs, and I'm pretty ruthless with unsubscribing from purchases. Me too. And, and I'm getting content around food and lifestyle from a brand that I bought linen from. And it, to me, it makes no sense that I would continue to receive the content, but I love it, and it's awesome. And <laughs> it's really funny that you said it. And how many EDMs can you can you say, hand on heart, that you love getting and when they're in your inbox? Yeah. There's that, and then there's a trend one by Wonderman Thompson, another agency group. They do a, um, a, a trend insight one. I can just never bring myself to delete. I have yeah. to read every email because it's such insightful, interesting, curated content that's really useful. You know, you feel like you're learning or you're inspired or or you want to send it on to someone. And I yep. think if you can keep those really tangible feelings as a consumer and translate them then, you know, from a marketer's perspective into actionable items on behalf of your own organisation, that's really compelling. Yeah, that's right. And all of the studies show that the value of a strong brand is that you can charge a higher price, you'll close your deals quicker from the brands that aren't in market that people aren't thinking of. And when it comes to the next time to purchase in that category, the likelihood of doing so with them is so much higher. Do you guys want to ask me some questions? You said you were going to flip it around at me at, at some point and uh, play podcast host. Tricks I'm really interested from... Oh, Tris, do you have a question? There you go, you go. What is the hardest thing about when you're working with marketers from a performance perspective? What is the sort of... What's the hardest thing or the, the shift that you try to make most often when it comes to long-termism and, and short-termism? What is it? What's the journey that you find yourselves on constantly? I think it's, it's kind of starting from that top level, right? Which is what percentage of my revenue should I spend on marketing? And there's kind of rules of thumbs on that. You know, is it 10 to 13% on average? But obviously if you're in, I don't know, small professional services, you're probably spending much less. And if you're in FMCG, you're probably spending more. Okay, let's agree. Let's agree on that to start with. What percentage should we be spending on activities, which are going to be really valuable longer term, build our brand, do all those great things versus what percentage should we be spending on making sales, generating leads? Now, obviously, every business person, every marketer would happily just sit there generating more leads and more sales, but it's not how the world works. So, you know, probably looking at that 60-40 rule, 70-30, like how does it work? From that, what should go into digital and what should go into offline, above the line type activity? I think it'd be good for us to talk about that maybe after this as to because you guys have 
you're not a media agency, but I think you probably have more exposure to kind of those types of decisions. We sometimes, depending on the size of the business we're working with, some of our smaller clients, we're much more involved in all those discussions. But if we're dealing with a much bigger client, then they'll come to us and say, we've got this budget for search and or social or whatever it might be. How do we best kind of deploy it? You know, in that instance, if someone comes to us and, you know, we work with some household brands, right? And they'll come to us and say, here's a Google ads budget. The brand stuff is already happening. There's TV ads happening. There's backup bus. And so in that instance, it is probably more of a technical discussion, Lindsay. It probably is more, we're looking at your Google ads instance and it's dog's breakfast or it's actually being run really, really well. And then it is probably more technical in nature as to, to kind of the recommendations. But I think probably where that question was coming from is more when it is we're seeding to rocket our digital marketing for the next 12 months. And these are our goals and kind of go off and do it. And it is often an education process of put the conversation that we're having now, right? Which is to say, you don't have the cut through or you don't have the brand that your competitors do. And you need to be investing in sensible long-term activities. And they still should be measured, but measured probably with different metrics. And so it is about like SEO for us, pretty much every study on SEO shows that it's a higher quality visitor than through paid search. So the obvious thing is I want traffic, I want it tomorrow, I want leads, buy, buy, buy. Our clients that have consistently invested in organic and to do that generally, it's the equivalent of brand building versus demand gen. You're basically saying I'm willing to invest now for things that won't happen for 12 months, 24, 36. And that's not to say you won't get green shoots and uh, potentially return on investment sooner, but you're actually, Mm -hmm. it's an investment in the future. So you're kind of having to build that story as well. Most traffic goes to SEO. I think like 70% of traffic that gets moved around to Australian businesses each day is happening through Google Organic, right? Google search is like 10%, if that. Social is really, really small and you get kind of direct. So if you actually want to move volume, you're doing it through SEO, but that's an investment in the future. And it's also a leap of faith because if you get it wrong, you never get it. And then things like email marketing, Lindsay, like that's the example you just described. Like it, it is an awesome tool to generate return on investment. And generally it is the cost effective channel to drive ROIs through email marketing, but to actually generate your database and have them bought in and nurtured is an investment in time and in content, whatever yeah. else. And then within what are viewed as more performance channels like paid search, paid social, even within that, like often we're trying to re-educate customers now that you know, if, you, if you're B2B and you're in LinkedIn running paid ads, you can't really judge it through MQLs, SQLs, opportunities opened in the, unless you're in a really transactional space. Like if you're in B2B SaaS or you're trying to sell managed IT services, it's about generating eyeballs, impressions, clicks, downloads of a white paper to then be nurtured. So it's probably really similar themes, right? And it's a bit art and it's a bit science, right? Because it depends on the client, depends on what where they're at. Like if you're dealing with someone that's quite mm-hmm. sophisticated, they've been doing this for five years, doing it quite well. It's a different conversation to someone that's coming into a business that's needing to scale and has these very strong plans as to where they need to get to. And often it's about kind of setting expectation properly. What about in a downturn? How how much are you diagnosing the sort of the path forward versus, you know, clients having a plan themselves? And specifically during an economic downturn, what uh, channels or ways of working do you find to have been most effective? Yeah. When COVID first hit, we were kind of like lots of businesses were freaking out. It was kind of you know, it's going to be a recession. What, you know, how do we plan for this? How do we, as, for ourselves, but also for our clients? And we actually, we published at the time, I think it, it was really good and it still is good. It was kind of the, re- the recession marketing manifesto, I think. And we looked at 
a lot of research because Australia hadn't had a recession since the early 90s. So there's very little, there's nothing in terms of digital in Australia to lean on, but also very little in Australia for a long period. So a lot of the research, and you touched on it before, Linz, was basically saying brands that cut their marketing budgets in poor economic conditions come out of recessions tremendously worse than those that hold firm. So it's not self-serving marketing stuff. It's actual like Harvard Business Review studies, uh, academic papers coming out of Europe. And the reason being is that that's what most people do. They cut their budgets. But if you hold firm and you continue to invest in brand and being in, in the mind of your, your potential customers, that when inevitably things pick up, all the benefits of brand building are there. And mm-hmm. I think one of the really interesting case studies was Toyota. Like Toyota's growth in America was like largely put down to what them continuing to invest in the early 70s when there was some huge downturn in auto. Mm-hmm. They kept investing, kept investing. And the car buyer journey is you know, a long one. Um, so all these brands are pulling out, but no one would have bought the cars anyway. So, but I think it, as it relates to digital, it's also at the moment very sector driven. Like there's certain sectors that, you know, are so decimated that it's hard to make an argument that you should invest in either if literally you're you know, on the verge of um, insolvency. But for brands that are kind of right-sizing in tough sectors, it's about them. Well, okay, the pie is a little bit smaller for marketing. If your performance channels are working, then obviously you want to keep driving those channels forward. But a lot of the digital thought in that kind of instance is if your performance is not going as well as it was, you might shake that down, but you should continue to be investing in your SEO, your content strategy, email marketing, because whether it's six months or 12 or 18, things change, mm-hmm. right? And you don't want to be the brand that cut everything and then you're starting from scratch then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting kind of duality. That, I mean, our customers, as in that work with you guys and work with us as similar senior marketers that have really great depth of knowledge around their product or service and marketing, right, as <laughs> a prerequisite. Um, but the kind of duality between grit and flexibility, I find really interesting. So what you just talked about there around grit during hard times and in continually investing. And ultimately, if your competitors are pulling away, your media spend should go further and, you know, there should be more opportunity for you to fly higher post downturn. But at the same time, you know, us and you talk a lot about iterative approach to creative, say, like, let's test and learn and see from a campaign perspective what's working. And then, you know, Jade talked about this on your interview with her, then drilling down and often quite surprisingly that the the, the grandma in an ad works really well for a younger audience, you know, yeah. things that we don't expect um, and being flexible enough to follow the insights. I just find that kind of the duality interesting in terms of what makes a great marketer for us, you know, for agencies to work with is somewhere in the middle, grit and um, focus and, you know, in a brand, from a brand perspective, going deep and really saying no to everything that is not part of the brand DNA, but at the same time, having the flexibility to learn and respond to whether it's market conditions like COVID or iterative approach to creative, somewhere in the middle, there's that sort of (laughs) utopia. And if only there was a handbook every time. Yeah, that's it. And I think the grit or the confidence personality to just continue to push back to stakeholders in the organization that don't get it, arming yourself with data and science and academic studies and whatever it might be to yeah. kind of say, you know, this, this is, isn't just my perspective. This is my yeah. perspective. And of, of course, we all want sales tomorrow. But the reality is, is, you know, roughly, I should have a budget that's roughly this percentage of our revenue. Mm-hmm. And here's, you know, the innumerable studies that prove that, you know, businesses spend between X and Y on marketing. Then from that, this is where it should be apportioned roughly. 70, 30, 60, 40, depending on where you're at. But then I think it's actually having kind of a, Lindsay, the, the flexibility or the acumen or whatever it might be to go, well, yeah, the way that I'm then spending that money makes sense. And 
having the foresight to invest in the long-term stuff that, mm. that you have the confidence in, but then change the short-term stuff that, you know. We have a, a an archetype, sorry, Tris, very quickly. Oh. We have an archetype at Cello where we talk about an optimistic challenger and it's exactly that. People that view things as an exciting opportunity, marketers that view things as an exciting opportunity, but are willing to kind of roll up their sleeves and 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 get involved in the, in the challenge. Tris? And I was just going to add, I think it's also the ongoing partnership between the various parties. So for example, partnership with the clients, partnership with the media agencies and the creative agencies and having regular touch points in regards to where feeding back performance of, of, of the creative so that we can con continually iterate and use those sort of insights to be able to develop new ideas that develop even stronger cut through and the client being very much a part of that so that there's a constant alignment throughout and it also keeps all of us accountable as well and I think that's the important thing like it's not just us handing over the creative to media it's making sure what we're saying, how we're sort of bringing it to life is actually working as well. And to that point, given my background, if a client comes to me and says, I've got this much budget, we can kind of look at where they're currently at. And I kind of, we're very strong at knowing where that budget should go. Should it go into Facebook or LinkedIn or Google yeah. search or SEO? When you're working with media agencies that are doing above the line and below the line, like how do you work together to best work out decisions around where the creative like is a chicken and like it's to me it's also a bit chicken and the egg like how do you know what creative to be working on without knowing you know what the what the budget is is it going to be tv radio like how does that all kind of come together ultimately when it comes to to me it's, it's budget like i think that's going to then determine you know the channels in which you can play yeah um obviously if there is you know uh, a strong argument to, to play in a certain channel then you know it's a conversation with a client in regards to you know, how do you shift budgets around to make this work? Another consideration is a creative idea in regards to, you know, there is an idea that's definitely going to get cut through and it needs to, to be in certain sort of channels to, to get that cut through. Whilst we can sort of collaborate with the media agencies and the clients in regards to, you know, our perspective, we do also lean on media agencies to provide their experience and expertise because, um, like, as we sort of mentioned earlier, you know, having the, the network of agencies that have sort of deep expertise in their area and how do you, how do those agencies then collaborate with each other to, to add value at certain touch points is, is, I mean, where we like to sort of play. Yeah. And that's very much the live example, right? Where the decision was, it's going to be digital first for a range of different reasons. You and myself, Tristan, with yeah. Jade and members of both of our teams actually then sitting down literally around a table working out which channels that, you know, based on our experience would be going into the, the type of um, creative that you guys were, were kind of thinking and then also the commercial imperatives of the client. And that's obviously worked well. And then this is the, this is what I always am fascinated by and something you guys can answer much better than I can. How much should I be spending to create my creative? And then how much should I be spending on amplifying it? And you're not allowed to say 95% to create it and 5% to amplify it. I mean, we, we typically work off a, you know, 70, 30, 80, 20 rule. Yeah. You know, there's no point sort of developing amazing creative it's not, if it's not going to be seen. And I think that's very much at a, at a brand level. But then, you know, what we like to do is then empower clients to have, as I sort of mentioned before, tools to let, make sure that that sort of creative goes, goes further. And it's simple, like it could be as simple as just developing a messaging framework. You know, what are your key value propositions? Sort of using that at a sort of top of funnel layer and then support that by benefits and proof points as you sort of work through the funnel. But then at least, you know, 
whilst we sort of can sort of develop big sort of brand creative, at least when you're sort of the developing, you know, creative and communications ongoing, you're essentially, you know, really drilling down, you know, the narrative that you want to control um, and, and have those conversations with, with um, the prospective audiences. And is that kind of an ongoing 70-30, 80-20, whatever it might be? Like if someone comes to you for a huge amount of brand work, re relaunching, reworking an entire brand, et cetera, et cetera, or coming into a new market or something like that, like is it fair to assume that maybe the percentage, is it does it change? And then once you're kind of in market a little bit more, bit BAU type activity, does it drop down or is it kind of continually... You know, that's 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 a typical sort of budget ratios we work with for go to markets. Yeah. But then in regards to an ongoing sort of mark uh, budget split, it's knowing what their marketing budget is for the year. Yeah. And how to then you know how do we start to think about developing a content strategy in regards to you know focusing on for example organic channels um, to be able to sort of you know develop ongoing content in a more effective way. So that's always going to be contextual. Yeah. There's that set rule based on that. Yeah. I think on that note too, there's it depends what category, you know, are you B2B, are you B2C? Is it a big consumer campaign? It's a very different conversation to a hyper-targeted B2B um, piece of work. Often we think of um, the brand work as in the brand strategy and the deep thinking separate to campaign budgets or separate yeah. piece of work because it should be lasting an organization three to five to seven years, depending what it, you know, what sector they're in and how how fast it's it's moving and changing. But it should be deep work that's done well, that's built in in, in research and insight that can then last multiple iterations of campaigns or you know approaches to different audience um, sectors. So we sort of separate the two out. And a huge trend that I'm loving watch unfold, and I've been a huge advocate of this for years, is B2C thinking in the B2B space and watching organisations like Salesforce and, and, and many others take a real consumer focus to B2B marketing. And what I mean by that is the depth and the quality of that storytelling um, instead of B2B kind of, you know, poor second cousin and here's a leaflet, you know, poorly printed into really clever, um, sharp, and you know higher production values because at the end of the day even b2b decision makers are people and we mm. all you know we want to be inspired and educated and you know uh, shared with as opposed to um sort of second best so i think there's a huge shift that way and um and often that comes back to the the core strategy what is it that we're trying to do and how is it distinctive from any other competitor in the space yeah that's it and i think that kind of connects back to the start of our conversation I was reading an article recently. The premise was, was that has there been an overreach in terms of money being moved into performance, into digital, into search, where you look at the kind of the, the graph over the last 15 years of the increase of budgets into, into digital, particularly in kind of search type activity um, and away from things like TV and radio and whatever else. And the article was looking at how the tech platforms and tech companies themselves, how they're approach to marketing has changed over that time and back in the day a lot of them didn't do a lot of marketing then started to but it was very digital and even like your big SaaS businesses were doing a lot of performance digital but not much else and now you look at it and it's you know you're at the airport and it's monday.com and asana ads and mm. you know salesforce you know sponsoring stadiums and you know the, the new the mm. new building looking over circular key and um, mm. they themselves are first of all taking that longer term brand building stuff but then to your point Lindsay then marketing in a way that um, is kind of b2h rather than 
Yeah, one one really interesting example of that is virtual, the um, sort of crowdfunding um, platform. I, I see a lot of, just from a consumer perspective, see a lot of ads on my Instagram, Instagram stories for organisations that are raising money via virtual. Um, and it's often two founders sort of saying, hey, this is the business we've built, we've got great traction. Um, and it's essentially like a mini VC pitch for mm. money on in my Instagram stories. Um, that's a really interesting intersection of, you know, commercial B2B, um, thinking, but taking a sort of traditionally more consumer platform and, you know, telling that story in a way that is more consumery by way of showcasing the product. And so I think um, that intersection is really interesting where people are going, well, ultimately, just where are the people we want to talk to? Yeah. How do we adapt to that channel? Um, even if we traditionally haven't played in that space or our competitors don't, let's use that to our advantage rather yeah. than steering away from. Yeah. Right message to the right person at the right time. 101. <laughs> Uh, you you sort of mentioned earlier in regards to trying to sort of address the barriers around brand versus performance when when having those conversations with with clients. I mean, what what are the things that you've that you've experienced that help them sort of uh, get across those barriers in regards to? I mean, what is what is the, the ideal client? I mean, what what are the clients that you love working with that sort of understand in the balance the balance between brand and performance? Yeah, I think, first of all, fundamentally understanding the role of each mm. to actually understand that without a strong brand that is recognized in a particular market that has goodwill, has all those things, it's going to make everything else much harder. Having a client who themselves can fight battles internally is super important. It is really frustrating when you can convince someone of something or they know it but they themselves are unwilling or incapable of actually fighting the good fight internally because yeah. it's kind of their job, right? Like if without a, without spoiler, the last question you're going to be asked is what career advice would you give to an in-house marketer? Often it is, you know, follow, follow the money or talk money, talk revenue. And it, it kind of ties into that. It's like if you can't make strong, rational arguments internally about why, you know, you haven't got enough money um, or there's too much pressure being put on to immediate a return and why that's mm. the detriment of the business in the long term, then it gets very, very frustrating. I guess the, the third point there, Therese, is just a marketer who doesn't actually believe any of that stuff and just thinks that everything should be performance-driven, ROI-driven, dollar-in, dollar-out, scale media budgets and keep um, ROAS and CPLs um, in check. And you, know, you kind of need to have that that flexibility and openness to... To, you know, to, to know that's not the case. Yeah, that's an interesting. I mean, it's the same with us. I mean, we, we, we sort of like to sort of think about our clients. I mean, the the, the, the amazing clients is optimistic challenges and, you know, they, they, they will fight the good fights because it, they believe it will essentially be the greater good of the business. And then it's on us as agencies to then equip them, you know, with yep. the right information, the right tools to be able to, you know, um, provide that back to their internal teams. As you get older, and have been in business for long enough, I think you get better at pushing back on clients as well in terms of like, it's our, as you kind of touched on, it's our job where the, yeah. we're the experts in our respective fields and we're not doing right by our client. If we're being an order taker and we're told, you know, spend this budget here or I need this then, or I need it now. It's about saying, well, yeah, it's our expert opinion that that's the wrong way of doing it or um, you're setting yourself up to fail. Um, so yeah. you, you, you know, a good agency, good contacts in an agency will, also help you right we'll push back and say you're wrong and then i think it's on you to you know to agree or disagree and then to do with that information what you can 
And that's how they, we're going to be able to provide the best value, having that external perspective. It's easy within an organization to be guarded but by the four walls that you sort of live yep. in day to day. You can't read the label from inside the bottle. Exactly. <laughs> and conversely, like we have we have a client that pays us a bunch of money um, each month for our best ideas. And you know how empowering that is both from their perspective and from ours for them to be getting the most value out of their creative agency to produce mm. the best ideas. And from our perspective, you know, hand on heart, what are the best, most out of the box things that an organization can be doing? And then if we all agree that it's aligned to the you know broader strategy and we feel like it's going to drive business results like maybe this you know think other things to consider outside of the um the briefs that have been written maybe there's you know there's new ideas and creative ways of thinking about problem solving and that is a win-win for everyone it, you know it gets the best out of us plus we get really bought in and excited yeah. to the opportunities with the brand um above and beyond the here and now sounds like a great way to en- to kind of engage an agency right engagement in the true sense of being engaged mm. yeah it's it's built on trusted foundations in that case, you know, marketer that we've worked with over many businesses. So that that, that proven trust, I think it takes two to tango. You know, they it's a it's a great relationship and I think we produce great results for the organization and for their team because, you know, they're empowering and it's a you know, it's a it's a win-win. And I think that symbiotic relationship over time is, you know, find your agencies and yeah. love them hard from a yeah. from a marketer perspective because we will ultimately be going the extra mile for yeah. those that we feel bought into. Yeah, it's just, and it's so true. You speak to every agency owner and it's like, you always go that extra mile for the clients you like. And then it's, yeah. the, and then I think there's this perception that beat your agency up and get the most out of them. And it just doesn't, it's not how it works, but. Yeah, which know. fortunately we don't see too yeah. much of that these days. I think a modern way of working is much more just kind of, it's probably built off the product attributes of things like Airbnb and Uber, where you are rating each other really visibly. That whole idea of just don't be a crappy person like just be you know be a good person turn up do great work treat each other with respect and everyone gets just better work and better results from it also it means when times are tough we're at the cold face with clients we are absolutely going the extra mile to help them out of you know tricky sticky hard situations because we're bought in we feel like we really are an extension of the team not just I don't know, you know, being a hand that's moved by the big bad client yeah that's it could not agree more guys I'm going to ask you the the, uh the closing question You've been pre-warned. <laughs> what, <laughs> what's the best piece of career advice that you would give to an in-house marketer? You go, Lynn's first. Nice one, Tristan. <laughs> Advise himself an per- extra 30 seconds. <laughs> On a personal level, I've always lived by you've got to be in it to win it. So giving things a go and, you know, if your gut's telling you to do it, you know, um, go with it. I think at a, on a sort of professional and marketing, um, internal marketing, senior marketer perspective, I'd say find your agencies, your trusted relationship and just love them hard. You know, the the benefits of a really great relationship with an agency is one plus one equals three. You know, we want to go the extra mile and, and the work is better for it. So um, I think, you know, you know, over time, whoever those people are for you, um, stick with them and, and nurture those relationships. Mm, good one. For me, it's all about, I mean, it's built, it's essentially building on what Lindsay said. True partnerships are built on, I think, just sharing information. I think just sharing, you know, the, the challenges, what you've got with us as a creative agency just gives us more context in what we've got to work with. Because quite often, you know, we don't want to be sort of developing presentations that, you know, don't really consider the various components that we need to consider. The more that they share, the stronger those the, the creative thinking is going to be because ultimately we're, we're trying to solve problems and you know handing those sort of uh, considerations to us allows us to to solve those problems in better ways love it what Go about on. you james what's oh. yours 
I'm on the I'm on the firing line here. Um, you did say you wanted us to keep you on your toes. That's true. I'm just going to rip. I just think follow the money. I just think if you genuinely just keep going up and how's the thing, how are the things that I'm working on actually helping my business and how am I helping my board or my CEO and my head of revenue to make more money for the business in the right way, then you're going to be a good marketer. Um, and my other one would be just actually understand the market. I think maybe 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 one from a more of a career perspective and then one from an actually doing your job take yeah. lots of time and effort to truly understand the market you're trying to play within and what your product or service can do to that market brilliant end of the pod <laughs> thanks guys thanks for listening to the smarter marketer podcast stay up to date about new episodes on linkedin and instagram by searching for smarter marketer podcast you can purchase your own copy of Smarter Marketer via the Amazon website. And if you want a second opinion about your business's approach to digital marketing, send me an email, jamesl at rocketagency.com.au or visit the rocketagency.com.au website. Thanks for your time.